This is Dak Prescott, and you're listening to Faith on the Field Show. Welcome to Faith on the Field Show, presented by International Justice Mission. I'm Rob Motti. I'm going solo this week, but it is great to be with you on all of our radio affiliates across the country. Thank you for tuning in or listening to the podcast. Our guest this week is Dr. Myron Roll. He's a former NFL player. He's a neurosurgeon. We're going to get to it early in our first segment because it's a long fascinating conversation but I do have a word for you and it's one that I needed to remind myself this week some days the enemy will attack relentlessly from every angle and ways that you never thought imaginable stand firm stand strong and persevere because when the enemy is working overtime to bring you down you got to know that God has something good something great something wonderful waiting for you and the enemy he doesn't want you to get there so don't give in and don't give up. I know I needed that this week, and I hope some of you out there may feel encouraged hearing that. We're going to get right to this interview with Dr. Myron Roll. He was a sixth-round pick by Tennessee in the 2010 draft after foregoing his senior year to study at Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar. His draft stock took a hit. It dropped, and he was expected to be a first, maybe second-round pick. Instead, he went in the sixth round. He never played a down in a couple years in the league, but he fulfilled a childhood dream by getting to the NFL, and he's now living out another one of his childhood dreams as a neurosurgeon. So we discuss his extraordinary story and his recent book titled The 2% Way. Dr. Roll, how old were you when your brother gave you Ben Carson's book, Gifted Hands, and, and what about reading that made you decide you wanted to be a neurosurgeon, because at that point you already wanted to be a football player, right? Deion Sanders and, and now Ben Carson. Yeah, uh, thank you very much, very much for having me. You know, I um, I got that book by my brother Marchant when I was in the fifth grade. Uh, he wanted me to have uh, an inspirational figure who looked like me, uh, someone who I can aspire towards being uh, that just wasn't playing a sport. Uh, and so I just read this book because I wanted to be a diligent, young, good younger brother and I believed in him and I believed that he believed in me. Uh, so in reading Dr. Carson's story, it just opened my eyes to this remarkable man who separated two conjoined twins who are connected at the occipital lobe. And both of them lived for the first time ever. This has never been done before. He was the youngest chair of pediatric neurosurgery at Johns Hopkins. Um, he had family who focused on education like mine did. He had a bit of a temper growing up too. And I had a little bit of that as well. And then he had, um, you know, a modest, humble background as far as not growing up very affluent. And we weren't either coming from the Bahamas to New Jersey. So I saw a lot of parallels and similarities in his story and his, and his upbringing to mine. And I said, if there's anything that I want to do in life, it's going to be to try to be like this man and this brain that he's working on every single day, this thing that controls the way we speak, the way we control our body temperature, the way our heart rate goes, the way our respiratory rate goes, it, it's it's just a phenomenal thing. And so if he's able to do it, then maybe I can do it too. So once Deion Sanders was on my wall, he moved to the side. He, he <laughs> stayed on my wall, but then Ben Carson took a spot as well. And that's uh, that's really opened me up to neurosurgery. Well, how did football prepare you to be a neurosurgeon? Football prepared me in, in several ways to be a neurosurgeon. Uh, communication. Uh, you know, when I played on the football field, I was the safety. So third line of defense all the way in the back and, you know, having to call out strengths of defense or offenses, uh, had to call out blitz packages that we wanted to adjust when we saw a different personnel come into the field. I actually called out the personnel 
when they went up to the field and I called out the down and distance for our team. So always talking, always communicating, make sure everyone knew what was, what was being done. And if they didn't hear me, I'm actually going up and tapping them on the side of the butt. Like, Hey, Hey, did you hear me? Okay. This is what we're doing. And so in the operating theater, it's the same way. Uh, you're, you're communicating with your anesthesia team, your circulating nurses, your scrub techs, your fellow neurosurgeons, your attendings, the bosses who are above you, the medical manufacturing group that's in there. So communication is super key. Teamwork, overcoming adversity, uh, mitigating pressure. I think that's one of the major things that football taught me. When it's fourth down, when you're backed up, you know, teams in a tight zone, 12 yards and in, and they got the momentum and the crowd's going crazy, there's rain coming down. How do you stick to your fundamentals and rely on your skill and your training to go ahead and make the play for your team? Same way if we're in the operating theater, we're in a very delicate part of the brain, an eloquent part of the brain. And there is a vessel that's traversing right where this tumor is that we're trying to take out. How do we calm ourselves down, mitigate that pressure, go back to our fundamentals, go back to relying on our technique and our training and, um, and then execute and do the best we can for the patient on the, on the table. So uh, football has been a great teacher for me in transitioning into this next chapter of my life, which is neurosurgery. And I've been loving it. There's really, though, no margin for error, right, when you're operating on a child's brain. How do you, from a mental standpoint, how do you approach that knowing that there's no in, – in football, okay, you're the last line of defense. You get beat, touchdown. You guys, uh, unless it's overtime, you're still on the field. It's, it's different here, right? It's absolutely different when you're operating on someone's brain. It, it is different for sure. And, uh, you know, you, you know that the stakes are a lot higher. You know that there are people who are relying on you to do well in that operating theater, not only for the patient, but also their family, their friends, their loved ones, people who you know rely and respect them and, and want them to reintegrate into the community cured, right? And not left with a, a major deficit or any deficit, frankly. Our job is not to go in and make you worse. Our job is to go in and, and make you better and help make you better. But I think that's what the beauty of medicine it, it has, has been for me, is that we're not cowboys in there. We're not trying to play hero ball, as they would say. We go in with evidence-based practices and techniques, things that have been done, tried, true, and tested many times before. We go in with all the equipment we can, the accoutrements that we can use to make sure that we are accurate, to make sure that we are precise, to make sure that we have very little margin of error, as you're mentioning, and we reduce that margin to even, you know, um, to, to uh, an even smaller um, uh, level. And we go in and plan and plan and plan more and plan again and talk through everything to make sure that we have covered everything uh, necessary uh, to make sure that we are giving our best effort and optimizing that situation for that patient. So there's a lot that goes into it. And I appreciate the fact that I'm being trained at one of the best, if not the best hospital in America uh, with some phenomenal attending neurosurgeons uh, who have instilled that into my mind. And so that I approach every single case with that level of, you know, um, expertise and intensity, uh, because that's what every patient needs for sure. Before you moved on to this chapter of your life, you were drafted by the Tennessee Titans in the sixth round in the NFL draft. But prior to that, and I think it certainly impacted your status because after your junior season, you were, you were thought to be a potential first round pick, but then instead of playing your senior season, you, you forego that you go to Oxford after being named a Rhodes scholar so how difficult was that decision? Because you're trying to balance these two passions and two career goals at the same time, and knowing one may impact the other one. 
So how tough was that decision? It was a very difficult decision. Uh, you know, I've always wanted to be a Rhodes Scholar since I heard about uh, Senator Bill Bradley's story. Uh, I went to high school in Princeton, New Jersey, and not very far from where he went to uh, college. Uh, there was a big mural and, um, you know, a big sort of trophy case about all of his exploits. And I said, this guy is the model student athlete, the epitome of what you want to be. And so I knew going into whatever college I chose, Notre Dame, Stanford, USC, Texas, Florida State was where I chose, uh, I would try to accomplish the Rhodes Scholarship status. And um, I graduated in two and a half years so that I could position myself to apply for a Rhodes Scholarship my junior season and also get to the National Football League. And talking to Samari, my cousin, and Shrell Roll, my cousins, they said if I ran fast, I can be a late first, maybe early second guy. I put my name into the, the sort of scouting service that you do as an undergrad, as underclassman, and they said I'd be a first-round pick potentially, maybe early second. So everything was leading in that direction, but the Rose Scholarship was too great to pass up. I, I just I realized that if I went and studied there, if I developed myself as a leader, if I immersed myself in this culture, if I got this medical anthropology degree, it would behoove my future interests, and it would also serve as an inspiration to younger people who see my journey and say, well, he had this fork in the road, right? And he chose academics and education and knowledge as the lasting and enduring way that he can have an impact, um, you know, in the world outside of just sports. He didn't choose the money, the fame, and the quick sort of uh, achievement of um, getting to National Football League. Even though I did go back uh, and my draft stack stock went down, my monies went down, I played only three years instead of eight or nine. It was certainly a sacrifice. But if I had to make the decision again, I'd make the same one uh, because I, I do believe that it set me apart as a role model and it allowed other people to see that you can do both and you can put education first, though, and, uh, and that will take you to higher places. And um, I'm glad that I was able to fill that role for someone. You feel part of why your stock fell a little bit and, and how things played out was trying to convince teams like it was a challenge to, to show them that you were also focused on playing football. You had outside career interests, but you were committed to playing football. What, was that a challenge? It was definitely a challenge. You know, I, ever since I made the announcement that I was going to take the road scholarship instead of taking this, this draft journey, uh, <laughs> where anybody, I mean, they're right mind, first round pick, why aren't you taking it? So, um, I received a lot of comments from NFL front office personnel that, uh, am I committed? Uh, am I abandoning my team? Uh, why should they invest money in me if I'm just going to leave when something is difficult in the NFL and go on and be a doctor or go on and be a politician or go on and run, you know, a, a, a not-for-profit non-governmental organization? Like why would they put time and effort into me when there's another guy who maybe not as good as you, uh, but he can do some of the things that you can do who needs this. This is all he has. Uh, so for me, it just was, it, it didn't make any sense. I, I said, you know, how can I, as someone who has been giving my life to this sport since I was six years old, and you've been telling us that we need to be student athletes, scholar athletes, student athletes, scholar athletes. Then I tried to optimize the scholar part and it becomes a punishment to me. It becomes a stigma to me. Even after I got drafted, many of my coaches, not all, but many of my coaches would only speak to me about my humanitarian trips I took to Congo with President Clinton or how the Rose Scholarship was or what is brain surgery like, you know, because I knew I wanted to do neurosurgery rather than speaking to me about cover two or blitz packages or how a shutter block, you know, coming off the edge when they were talking to my teammates about that. And so I was like, I, I knew from then it was hard to shake. It was difficult to sort of get away from that mindset. But, um, you know, it, it in, in, in actuality, after I finished all of it, 
the NFL career, I realized that maybe God was protecting me from uh, catastrophic neurological issues with the traumatic brain injury or CTE or damaging my fingers and my hands so that I could not do surgery anymore. So maybe there was, you know, a silver lining in the end of all of it, but it's certainly going through it. It was very difficult. We'll be back with more with Dr. Myron Roll. You're listening to Faith on a Field Show presented by International Justice Mission. Today, over 40 million people are being forced into trafficking and slavery. One in four are children. We cannot allow them to suffer in silence. We need you. We need everybody. Go to IJM.org backslash take action. Get information. Understand how you can be involved. Because of the work that you are committing to do, they will be free. This is Derek Henry, and you listen to Faith on the Field Show. Back to Faith on the Field Show presented by International Justice Mission. I'm Rob Motti going solo this week. If you're listening to us for the first time, you can go to faithonafieldshow.com, find every episode since we launched in 2017. We've had an awesome lineup of guests. You can listen anytime at your convenience on any of the podcast platforms. You'll hear the full interviews on there. Be sure also to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Faith on the Field and tell a friend or two about the show. I want to take a second to thank all of our wonderful sponsors, awesome sponsors. Please check them out on our website, International Justice Mission. They do terrific work fighting against trafficking and human slavery. Also, Heritage's Dairy Stores. If you would like to be a sponsor for our show and help our ministry grow, please reach out to us at team at faithonafieldshow.com. We have packages that we can cater specifically to fit your needs. And our goal is to be on a sports radio station in every state. So if you don't have a business to advertise on, but... You want to help the ministry? We do have a donate button on our page on faithonafieldshow.com. Now we're going to get back to part two of our conversation with Dr. Myron Roll. I want to ask you about something that your dad would say to you, be so good they can't deny you. What did that phrase mean to you and how, how did that just carry throughout your life? It was a very, very poignant phrase and one that uh, still sticks with me to this day. I, I, what my daddy meant was that um, Understanding my color, understanding our background coming from the Bahamas, understanding our social station in this in this uh, society, uh, that we may not get two or three chances like your teammates or classmates or your friends may get. Uh, your um, margin for error, uh, your opportunity to err, to make mistakes, um, it is uh, it's not existent sometimes. And so, with that understanding, you can't walk into situations feeling bad for yourself, uh, saying, woe is me. You need to be so good that they cannot deny you that your skill, your talent, your performance, what you bring, the value that you add is so great that they can't find it anywhere else. And regardless of what your skin tone or your body may look like, they have to give you an opportunity. They have to open that door for you because you are that good. And so that standard, that expectation, that bar was so high that, you know, I I felt it it was, um, even if I missed that bar, I was still above the competition or above my peers because I was I was shooting past anywhere anyone could put an expectation on myself. They 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 couldn't have said, Myron, we need you to rise here because I was already trying to go even higher than that based on how my father talked to me and my brothers about making sure that we're prepared, making sure that we're ready for all moments and being so good that they cannot deny us. So that's something that I've taken with me in medicine, in philanthropy, uh, in my leadership. My, my mentoring of young people, 
uh, even in football. Just always prepare, always work hard. And that 2% way, the mindset of getting a little bit better every single day, what I write about in the book, uh, is a way, is a process for me to get there. Now, in the early stages of the pandemic, it was all hands on deck, all doctors, nurse or everyone, whatever you were, you were called in and called to duty. How did that experience, I know you were in the spotlight, you were thrust into the spotlight at that time, talking about COVID-19. And how, how did that experience um, just prepare you for everything that comes next in your life? You know, that experience was, was very trying. I remember our chairman of neurosurgery at Mass General Hospital, Bob Carter, saying to all of us, um, you know, the, the pandemic is here. Our elective cases are going to be shut down and we are going to uh, open up the capacity in our operating rooms uh, and our floors for COVID patients because we at Mass General Hospital are the major referral center for all of New England. Uh, and so we needed to have the bandwidth to take care of, uh, you know, the onslaught of patients that were coming from the street infected with COVID or maybe suspected of having COVID-like symptoms. And so uh, transitioning from being a neurosurgeon to now being an ED doctor, essentially managing this surge clinic, taking in patient's history, doing physical exams, obviously prepare, uh, walking in with all my PPE on, but getting them the right consults uh, services, whether it be infectious disease or pulmonology, making sure I order the right scans, making sure that I'm proning them correctly so they can recruit more oxygen to their lungs. All of these things were new to me. Uh, it's not central nervous system. It's not the brain or the peripheral nervous system like I typically do. Uh, but I had to be humble and learn and, and be, you know, um, a rookie again, essentially. Just like sort of figure out how do I be a great team member in something that is not my expertise, not my specialty. Let's go for it. Let me uh, adjust and adapt and be flexible and let's do it. I think something else in that pandemic that really stood out to me was the disproportionate amount of black and brown patients that we saw at our hospital. Typically, Mass General Hospital, best hospital in the country, we see a lot of the high-end clientele, basically because you know everyone wants to come there to get their complex surgeries uh, taken care of. But we don't see the local Rockberry, Mattapan, Dorchester, the inner city parts of Boston. We don't see those patients quite often. They typically go to another community hospital. And so now that the pandemic was here, I was seeing a lot more patients that look like me come in through the doors. And I'm thinking to myself, well, why is that the case? Well, part of it, chronic conditions being undermanaged or not managed, not being able to pay for medications, not being able to social distance because you live on top of each other in government housing, uh, not being able to stop or step away from work. So you expose yourself more by going into places that are highly crowded. So all this, it just... COVID really shined um, another spotlight on a gap in health disparity that we already knew was there, but now we see it even more so and, and, and the ability for hospitals like Mass General and others, major, major centers, to reach out to those underserved and marginalized communities uh, has become even more important since the pandemic. And so I'm, I'm glad that was a, a, a good takeaway, a good outcome from, um, from the pandemic and all the things we had to deal with. Dr. Roy, you titled your book, The 2% Way, and, and that comes from that title comes from what your defensive coordinator at Florida State, Mickey Andrews, would say. How did, how did his 2% better each day philosophy play out in college? Coach Andrews uh, is amazing. He was coached uh, by Paul Bear Bryant at University of Alabama, and he would challenge me and my teammates, as you mentioned, to get 2% better every day. Uh, our stamina, our ability to disguise blitz packages, high point the football, whatever. And... Um, he'd say this was a practical way for you to get better. It's practical 
daily edification. You know, you can't get 100% better tomorrow, but you can get a little bit better and take these consistent steps towards becoming a better football player. And I took this mindset and extrapolated it to life so that anything that I read, any person I met, any experience I had, I was trying to extract 2% from that experience and add it to my own journey. So this book is really talking about how you can take larger, seemingly daunting challenges or goals or tasks and break them down piece by piece and get a little bit better every single day. Have small wins, small victories every day so that a month from now, six months from now, a year from now, you can see how far you've improved, how far you've grown and how much you've done uh, to be a better version of yourself. And I I use my story arc through the book and, and talking about uncertainties and self-doubt and uh, feeling like I don't belong. You know, I was coming from New Jersey as a prep school kid down to Florida where my teammates had gold teeth and dreadlocks, like feeling like you don't fit in a lot of times with crowds, you know, all these things that are human experiences, but how do you get over them? How do you pass, how do you get through them? And how do you have success on the other end of those challenges? Well, the 2% way, this very, you know, realistic process of getting a little bit better consistently every day is a way to do it. And so uh, that's really where the book comes from. And that's, I appreciate and I love Coach Andrews for placing this ideology in me and my teammates. And now I've just taken it to life and um, it's been very helpful. So many valuable lessons and stories that you share in there, advice. And if there's one takeaway that you hope readers can gain from the 2% way, is there one? Could you narrow it down? Uh, Yeah, you're right. There's so many. But I I would say that um, the one thing about the 2% way is it has great utility. You know, it doesn't just have to be your your process towards being a road scholar or an NFL player or a neurosurgeon. It can be your process in reconnecting with your family more, you know, having more communication with your parents. I mean, as young people, I know it. Uh, I often sometimes just forget to call my mother, call my father, and I, I love them dearly, but I just get so caught up and I, you know, I just, it, it loses, uh, it, it loses sometimes the, um, the importance or the, the, the place of my schedule, taking a 2% small process every day, having a, a buddy to check on me to make sure I am doing that, making sure I'm putting reminders in my phone, making sure that you know, I'm talking to my brothers about it, making sure that I carve a little bit of piece of my day so I can do this and all these things. This 2% way has got utility in personal life, private life, and in spiritual life, in your professional walk, whatever it may be. It's a process that is incredibly flexible, uh, incredibly versatile, and one that I think um, gives us the assurance that, you know, in a world where it seems like a microwave, where everybody's getting everything tomorrow, you look on social media, it seems like everybody is accomplishing all their goals right away. It seems like everybody's just ahead, ahead, ahead of you. That's what it looks like on the outside. But in reality, it's not. And you can stay in your lane and just get a little bit better every day and know that you are walking your path, your journey, stay comfortable in that. And then when you look back, you can say, I've come so far and I've done so much and I appreciate taking these small consistent steps because this has made me a better person. Last one for you. Tell me about that day as a, as a young kid, because you came to Christ as a young, as a young boy, I think you were 10, 11 years old, how that influenced you to make better decisions, how that guided you, how knowing that you had the Lord within you changed your life. Now, I had a lot of challenges as a young person uh, dealing with um, uh, being an immigrant, immigrant family, dealing with poverty, dealing with racism, uh, dealing with a temper and an attitude. <laughs> I often felt like if I did well in school and did well on the football field, uh, that my behavior could be untoward and, uh, and I would be OK. And one time it actually got me caught up where 
Uh, I had to go to court uh, because I beat up a kid so bad. He called me the N word. And, you know, I talk about that in the book and get into real depth about it, but it just was a very trying moment. And from being able to move past that because by the grace of God, uh, being able to move past that by, you know, the thankfully, thankfully to some community advocates and a great lawyer, I knew that the pivot had to happen and I had to uh, start to become a man, uh, put away childish things and become a man like it talks about in First Corinthians. And so giving my life to Christ, understanding that I had a helper, had someone who's going to cover me, someone who's going to walk with me uh, and someone who's going to be with me at all times. That gave me the blessed assurance that um, regardless of what arrows man may throw at me, I'm protected and I'm okay. And I don't have to respond and react to all of these things that are happening uh, that, you know, will, will take me away from my path, will take me away from my future, will take me away from the goals, will take me away from the vision that my parents had for me. And so uh, I, I stick to the story of Joseph. It's my favorite story in the Bible where, you know, he was thrown into a pit, lied on by his brothers and forgotten about, sold into slavery and then lied on when he got to the palace, forgotten about in prison, just all these challenges that he faced over and over again. But if you read the scripture, it continues to talk about how, and God was with him and God was with him and God was with him. Never left him despite all these times where you would think, man, I, I think your luck's run out, brother. I think, I think you're pretty much on the out. That was, um, that, that's a story that's really stuck with me, that has kept me, that I always go back to whenever I'm facing challenges or facing, is, facing issues. I know who I have in my corner at all times. And that day, I didn't become sin-free, but I became a man and I became someone who had the, the, the devout understanding of my purpose, my position in life, and who's with me at all times. And that has given me sort of the fuel to continue to move forward. And now I have my own family, four kids, a wife. I'm leading my own Christian home. Uh, I, I'm injecting all those same principles that, um, you know, that I've learned along the way. And so it's been a blessing for sure. Beautiful, man. Well, I wish you a ton of blessings. And I thank you for spending some time sharing with me about the 2% way and, and your journey. Thank you, Dr. Roll. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. That's it for this week. Thank you to Dr. Myron Roll. Thank you to Doug, Pastor Scott, and everyone on our team. And thank you for listening to Faith on the Field show presented by International Justice Mission. For Remy, I'm Rob Motti, reminding you, make a difference. Be a blessing. Today, over 40 million people are being forced into trafficking and slavery. One in four are children. We cannot allow them to suffer in silence. We need you. We need everybody. Go to IJM.org backslash take action. Get information. Understand how you can be involved. Because of the work that you are committing to do, they will be free.